I'm Peter Medlin. You're listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. This episode is coming out the day after Thanksgiving. I just want to take a second and say that I'm thankful for everyone that takes the time to listen to our show. We couldn't do it without you, and I mean that very literally. All of the wonderful educators, all of the guests that we've had on are nominated by you, by our listeners. So if you can, email the show at teacherslounge at niu.edu and tell us about a teacher in your life who you're thankful for and who we should talk to. They could be the next guest on this podcast. Our episode today is with Lynn Ravis. She's a recently retired English teacher who's taught in districts across the country. Lynn also has family, including her father, who survived the Holocaust. And for decades, Lynn has worked with organizations to educate people of all ages about it and pass down the stories of survivors, especially as, in 2020, many of the survivors themselves have passed on. And that's why the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, for example, has the Generations Program, so that we can continue to tell stories and try to help our students and our audiences understand that once you hear a story, it is yours to continue to tell. They talked about how teaching history and the Holocaust has evolved over the years and doing so through literature and storytelling. All of that and so much more coming up. All right, before we get into my conversation with Lynn, let's do a quick news roundup. Here in Illinois, the state has moved into Tier 3 COVID-19 mitigation measures, and many schools that were doing some kind of hybrid in-person instruction have moved remote for at least the rest of 2020. Rockford Public Schools is one of those districts. Unlike many large school districts, RPS used a blended, partially in-person schedule. Winnebago County COVID-19 case rates rose, and students and staff tested positive through the fall. Dr. Sandra Martell, the Winnebago County Health Department director, had said despite cases in schools, schools were not yet a transmission site. But now that may be changing. But you will see that on Friday that we were reporting our first outbreak in a school. It's at Spring Creek Elementary, RPS 205, and you see the range will be 5 to 10 cases in staff. RPS is reporting 41 active COVID-19 cases in the district between students and staff. A Spring Creek teacher said at a recent board meeting she knew 11 teachers who had tested positive for COVID-19 since late October. One of the Spring Creek teachers who tested positive said her husband, another Rockford educator, also received a positive test. He died after the COVID-19 diagnosis. And it raises questions about the cost of trying to make in-person instruction work in the middle of a raging pandemic. Even if you have precautions in place, even if you have masks and enforced distancing, Can you guarantee it can be done 100% safely? Those in-person schools have also faced a staffing crisis where it's been very difficult to find substitute teachers to come in and cover for teachers who may be quarantining. Amanda Christensen is the DeKalb County Regional Superintendent. Her office is the hub for subs, helping with background checks and licenses. There's a greater drain on the system then, and we certainly are not keeping up with the need. COVID-19 concerns are the core cause behind this, especially because a large portion of substitutes are retired teachers who may be more at risk and don't feel comfortable coming into the classroom. And when a teacher needs to quarantine and miss a few days, typically there's not much notice. And that makes it much more difficult for subs who may need childcare or be helping their own kids with remote learning. It's become more common for districts to shuffle teachers to cover gaps and even call in principals or district administration to fill in for a class. Sometimes teachers at home can digitally connect to their in-person class. In those cases, the state board gave schools permission to use non-certified people to physically help kids along with their teacher. 
This person has to pass a background check and is often a district employee like cafeteria or bus staff. All right, now it's time for my conversation with retired English teacher and current Holocaust educator, Lynn Ravis. You've been uh, retired for a few years now, right? This is, I'm starting my fifth year of retirement, yes. Wow. So um, I, I got out just before a lot of the technology in my school district was being implemented, but I've still had to learn because I do presentations online for both adults and children. So I've had to learn some of the technology and I'm going to begin teaching an asynchronous class uh, after the first of the year. So I'm gonna to have to learn some more technology. So this is fun for me that I'm learning in a slightly less stressful situation than my colleagues would be doing. Yeah, they. Uh, I think the phrase I keep hearing is learning how to fly the plane while it's in the air. <laughs> I, I am in touch with quite a few of my former colleagues, and I've heard all kinds of stories. I'm watching my grandson go through this. My daughter-in-law teaches on the college level. So I, I have been able to see quite a bit of what's going on, and I understand some of it, but I'm not in there on that front line every day. And it has been incredibly stressful for those people in education, as well as the students and the families. Yeah. What is the class that you're going to be teaching, teaching asynchronously? Well, I am a facilitator for Echoes and Reflections, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, Echoes and Reflections is the result of the Anti-Defamation League, the Shoah Foundation, and Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, all coming together and creating a curriculum so that educators have all types of materials right at their fingertips that they can use with their students. And I help train those educators in how to use it to familiarize themselves. So since we cannot hold in-person training sessions, Echoes and Reflections has been working on online courses, both one-hour workshops, maybe four-hour workshops, different topics, synchronous and asynchronous. So I'm gonna start doing some of the asynchronous teaching for those people who might be in another time zone and might have other obligations so that they can still participate and still feel comfortable and find ways to use the material online. Okay. Yeah, because I know that you volunteer with, with them and I know that you were doing volunteer work with the, the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, right? Have Correct. you been able to do any volunteering over the course of the pandemic? Have you been able to do any digital work or like have anything at all? What has it been like? I have. Um, interestingly enough, some of the, the schools that I spoke to before are still reaching out, even though it's not the same as having a survivor speak in person, because previously, when I first started volunteering with a Holocaust Center, it would usually be me telling what is called a generation story. Yeah. Um, the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh has a generations program for descendants of Holocaust survivors and we tell our families stories, or we might tell someone else's stories. So sometimes I would speak, and then a survivor would also speak to any given group, whether public, private, parochial, could have been a community organization. We do work with the Pittsburgh Police Department with the cadets. Mm -hmm. So we do quite a bit of speaking that way. 
And it gives us a chance to show them that there's not one storyline for the Holocaust. So since the pandemic occurred, we have done some work online and we did something what's called the FBI Citizens Academy of Greater Pittsburgh. So we spoke to a group of adults with the former FBI agent who was one of the agents in charge of the Tree of Life shooting. And she is now head of security for the Holocaust Center and the Jewish Federation at large. So she speaks about that and I tell a story about a survivor. So we've done some different things. I've spoken to some adult groups online. I've spoken to students online. I've done one in-person presentation on my own, but most of what we're doing is online. So the Holocaust Center is also trying to create materials that whether a child is being homeschooled by a parent or they're remote or they're alive in a classroom and a teacher can use them, we're trying to put materials together for them as well. Right. You know, and one of the things that I had read, uh, like an article, or I think it was actually on the the Holocaust Center's website, they had done like a Q&A with you. And one of the things that you mentioned in there, because it reminded me of, you know, trying to get these materials to make sure people are aware of them and put them in the hands of educators and people that talk about this, is that when you started doing this, which is what, more than 40 years ago now, that like a big obstacle was the complete lack of resources to be able to talk about that. Can you talk a little bit about like how that's evolved and how kind of Holocaust education and um, genocide education as a whole has kind of evolved over the years as maybe people have gotten more resources to those educators? When I began my career, I was living in a suburb of Dayton, Ohio, southwestern Ohio, and I was hired to teach eighth grade English at that time and still in many situations, the Diary of Anne Frank is in the anthology. So it was the play version. Everybody taught it. It was a play. But when you really look at the play version, it doesn't teach you very much about the Holocaust because the diary ends when they actually are arrested and taken to a camp and what happens afterwards. You don't get to see the full impact of the Holocaust. You see one family's situation trying to survive and in hiding and the people who tried to help them, which is extremely important, but it's not the full picture. I was fortunate when I started my career in 1978 that the Jewish Federation in Dayton, Ohio started Uh, a network, if you will call it in 1978, of trying to help educators get materials, get a a format, some way to get the information across. And so that helped me a little bit. But in 1978, and even for the next few years, there was very little information out there. And there was certainly not materials appropriate for students. You you had night and you might have had... some of those other books, but they weren't really designed for the younger students. And by younger, I mean middle school. So when I moved to St. Petersburg, Florida, because of my husband's career, I was hired to teach eighth grade English in a Catholic school. So for some reason that I cannot explain, I picked up the phone and called the Anti-Defamation League and said, I would like to teach the Holocaust in a Catholic school. And you can imagine their response. (laughs) Okay. 
they helped me. They got a set of beautiful posters, which back, think about 1983, which is when they gave me this. Posters were about all we had besides an overhead projector. And Oh my gosh, yes. I was at, I was at the tail end of the overhead projector era, but I still got it. <laughs> Right, mimeograph machines, okay, all that good stuff. Well, they provided me with some materials to help me out, but again, there wasn't much. So the next year when I was hired in the public schools in Pinellas County, I continued to work with the Anti-Defamation League and they were able to provide a rabbi to come speak to my students. Now, this tells you in 1984 what an incredible school district I was a part of wow. and my particular building in administration to allow me to bring a rabbi in to speak to the diverse community of Pinellas County at that time. Because 1984, if you stop and think about it, was saved by the bell, trapper keepers. and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but we, we were a very diverse community at that time. So I had a rabbi come and then they arranged for a survivor and his wife who was also a survivor, but she chose not to speak. But Stanley would speak to my students each year. So I started having a survivor come into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And when we moved away from St. Petersburg, then it became my responsibility to tell Stanley's story to my future students as we moved around the country. And fortunately, as time went on, more materials became available. Right. And many people think of some of the memoirs that are written by survivors, and they're wonderful, but a survivor is not always an author. So sometimes a memoir might be wonderful to read for an adult, but it may not be appropriate for an eighth grader. Yeah. Whether it's the content, whether it's the level of description that we don't want to get into with certain age groups. So as more materials became available, and by that I mean picture books, which people don't think about picture books being appropriate for middle and high school students, but when you look at the content, it's a snapshot sometimes of the Holocaust. So picture books became available, poetry became available, and certainly then videos came out, and some of those were <clears throat> excuse me, fiction, some were nonfiction, yeah. the materials have grown. And now we have an incredible amount of information out there. Right. It's been rewarding for me to see that growth over the decades. Yeah, it's interesting too, because you get over the decades, like you said, you get more information, you get more resources, more memoirs and ways that we can learn about this. But then at the same time, you have probably less and less survivors because they're all getting, they're all very old at this point. People are growing old and passing away. So at the same time as you have this, you know, way more resources at your disposal, those firsthand accounts and having those survivors be able to go in and tell those stories, the classrooms is, is probably something that's happening a little bit less and less these days, I'd imagine. And that's why the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, for example, has the Generations Program. Yeah so that we can continue to tell stories and try to help our students and our audiences understand that once you hear a story, it is yours to continue to tell. Because you're right, we, the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh lost three survivors just last week. 
So we know those numbers are dwindling very quickly. The concern becomes when we don't have the survivor to tell the story directly, and it's coming from me, whether it's me telling my family story or telling one of the many survivor stories of the people I've met, people can question that. Right. How do I know what I'm saying is really true? Especially in the age of social media disinformation, you know, it's something I, I talk about a lot. And I feel like you've seen over the last couple of years with all that a rise in, you know, anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, and those types of things. Absolutely. And it's, it's a very treacherous ground to walk on because I, I was listening to Fresh Air on NPR and they were interviewing uh, President Obama about his book. And he was talking about how history is not linear, that it could go sideways, it can go backwards. And we see this in our own lifetime that people are taking what we might consider backward steps in how they treat other people and how they view other people and that it's all right to express anti-Semitism and other forms of xenophobia or discrimination, that they feel comfortable doing that freely. And what does that say about where we are today? Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, you know, someone like you who spends a lot of time thinking about, you know, how to combat racial injustice and like education for that type of thing. When you see in the last couple of years, things like we mentioned the Tree of Life shooting, and then just kind of this national conversation that we've had about systemic racism and, and racial violence in this country in 2020, with you know things coming out of the killing of George Floyd and all of that. What are some of the things that you've been thinking about this year as we've been having this conversation kind of on a larger scale throughout the country? Well, what's foremost in my mind is, where are my former students in all of this? Mm. Is anything that they read about or thought about while they were in my classroom impacting their actions, their thoughts, their feelings today? Because we as educators know that we have an impact on lives. It could be positive, it could be negative, it could be neutral, but I'm, I'm wondering about the decisions my former students made. The last year that I taught was 2016, 2015, 2016. So it was during the campaigns, it was during all the buildup of things. When we were in the midst of our Holocaust unit, my students were working on small group projects. So they're working in small groups around the room and I sitting at my desk, observing, taking notes, checking their progress, but listening to their casual conversations. Mm -hmm. One point, two of my students were sort of debating uh, pro-Trump, anti-Trump. And they looked over at me and said, Mrs. Ravis, you're smiling. Why is that? And I said, because you're doing exactly what I hoped. You're listening to each other. You're expressing opinions. You're discussing this. You're not just taking a stance. One of the students, one of the parents was career military. The other student in this discussion, both parents were immigrants from Central and South America. So you can see the differences in their positions and yet respect why they were thinking things, but they were still willing to discuss it. And that's what I'm hoping is going on with students all across the nation right now is that they're listening to each other because anything we read is intended to influence how we think, 
feel, believe, or act. And so I want to know what they're reading and therefore how it's impacting them or what they're listening to and how does that impact their emotions, their decisions, their actions. You know, it makes me think of one of the things that um, the person that recommended you, that your, your nominator uh, mentioned in the email that they sent over was what stood out to her about you was your ability to kind of talk about really tough subjects and be knowledgeable about them. And it thinks like, you know, those two students that you mentioned of having a actual conversation about issues and trying to work through those things. So trying to do that in the classroom, I think is a unique opportunity because we don't have a lot of other spaces of people, hopefully, you know, ideally not in a pandemic physically, but in a physical situation to be able to sit down and say, hey, these are the things that we're going to discuss and try to do it in a meaningful way that's not, um, you know, on a Twitter thread that's angry. <laughs> it can be a minefield for educators. Yeah. Because, be, as I said, I've moved quite a bit because of my husband's career. So I've been in a variety of school districts, different socioeconomic situations. And each time you have to be aware of who the students are and where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. What I would always try to tell my students is when we're making our own decisions, it is not a judgment against our family, our family friends, our peers, but it's very important for each of us to know why we have certain thoughts in our head. If we're gonna let thoughts in, why did we let them in? Is it because grandma said it over the dinner table? Is it because dad's friend talks about this? Is it because my friends at school all believe this? Or is it because it's what I'm comfortable with and what I believe to be the proper action or the proper course? So we have to be really careful not to put students in a position where they feel uncomfortable, whether it is their religious background, whether it is their parents' current situation. It, it is difficult to do, and we have to be respectful of the fact that they're not all going to agree with the teacher in the classroom or with each other, but that they are making their own decisions. Mm -hmm. I used to tell my parents at open house each year back to school night that as eighth graders, they're thinking about going off to high school. The parents are thinking about college. They might be thinking about driver's license, dating. I said, I'm thinking about voting because some of my students would be eligible to vote before they graduated from high school. And when they walk in to a voting poll, what are they going to do? And what are they going to base that decision on? Because that impacts my life directly. So I want to know that my students are thinking for themselves and not just repeating what they've heard somewhere else. Right. And I think when we talk about, you know, Holocaust education too, it's like another thing I think that you might've mentioned in one of these articles too, is about, you know, trying to make sure that we can connect the dots between history and now, I'm wondering if you think that that's easier or harder to do in 2020. I don't think it's ever been easy, but I think it's even more important now mm -hmm. for students to understand what's connected. For example, when I would 
start my unit in Holocaust education, you can't just start with the Nazi rise to power. You really have to understand what led to people voting in those kinds of officials. So you have to look back at the Versailles Treaty. You have to look at the Great Depression that was occurring not just in the United States, but in other countries. And what were the feelings of the people in Germany after having been defeated in World War I? Yeah. All of these issues play into a person's decision. We don't just wake up and say, I'm going to vote for X. Something leads us towards that. So we need to understand that background. And that's what students need to understand about 2020's election is what led to that or 2016's election. What led to that? What made people act the way they do and make those decisions? So understanding that background and understanding therefore what led to the Holocaust and what, what is, I don't wanna draw parallels because that's not true, but as you said, the connecting the dots. What are the dots that are being connected in today's world that can be just as frightening and, and just as dangerous as the Holocaust? I'm curious over the last couple of years when you've talked to classes and, and, and done these, these generation speaker or speeches and, and these types of events, when you talk to students, what are the things that they're curious to ask you about? What do they want to know after you give these types of speeches? What are they curious about? Well, it's not so much afterwards. It's also helping students understand because many students, for the first question that I've heard in over 40 years of doing this is, why were the Jewish people targeted? Hmm. And it's important to understand the Jewish faith. And so in explaining the Jewish faith, Sometimes I had parents very upset that I was teaching religion in the classroom. And I tried to explain that that's no different than explaining the Jim Crow laws when we're looking at civil rights. We have to understand what the misconceptions, the myths, the mis, uh, misperceptions exist. Mm -hmm. Why do people distrust other people who look different or have different customs or what speak a different language, whatever it is that makes them uneasy. So we, we have to answer those questions for the students. Then afterwards, it's more about thinking about themselves because my whole purpose in speaking, whether it's my family story or it's another survivor story, is the power of the individual to change the world. Yeah. You may never see the impact of your decision or your action, but you could change the world for one person or many people by something you decide to do or not to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, your father is a survivor. Correct. I'm curious when you were first starting teaching, you know, in the seventies and, you know, you were starting to do Dyer's and Frank, did you feel like you could really talk a little bit about your family's connection like how open were you to discussing that when you were teaching it and did that evolve over the years the way that you kind of worked your own experience and your family's experience into teaching those things do you feel like you could do that i felt comfortable doing it and this is something that i try to help my audiences understand that every survivor is different yeah. some survivors will talk about their stories very comfortably mm -hmm. some survivors will pass away without ever having shared the details. 
And we have to respect that because we all handle what happens in our lives and, and how we share that on an individual basis. So we can't judge the survivors for sharing or not sharing. My father was never comfortable sharing it outside the family. Mm -hmm. I've known his story since I was 10 years old. I had no problem talking about it because to me, it was always important for people to understand just how far human beings are willing to go when they dislike, distrust, or simply don't want other people around. Yeah. So I, I had no problem sharing his story, but I had to be respectful of my father's privacy at the same time. Right. I think that's always fascinating to try to figure out the line of especially something, you know, so impactful like that of, you know, we're we're teaching something like the diary of Anne Frank. And, you know, we have such, you know, a, a, an accounts from your own family talking about that type of like how how much of yourself I want to bring into the classroom and just how big of an impact that can have on the people inside the classroom from those students, right? I think that's a really fascinating thing to to try to gauge how much of that you want to give. I think the result of my sharing it with students the last 20 or 30 years, because I was not living close to where my father lived, where people might know him, where people would ask him questions that he wasn't ready to answer. When I did tell this story, and the way I present the story is from third person, you do not know until the very end of the story that I'm talking about my father, because I'm really talking about my grandparents who adopted my father and brought him from Germany. So I want people to focus on the actions of my grandparents, the actions of the people in Germany who were trying to protect Jewish orphans and what happened to my father after he arrived in the United States. I don't want them focusing on me. But at the end, when I do reveal this is my father's story, suddenly history has been compacted into a moment rather than, oh, well, that was the 1930s. No, you're touching history right now. I'm alive because someone made a choice to help someone else in a very difficult time and situation. And that's what I want the audience to understand is that I did nothing for this story. It, it happened long before my existence was even imagined, but it is important for me to show what other people did and to show the results of those actions. I know, I think it's really fascinating these days, you know, in 2020 to think about history in that way, because I think a lot of times people that are younger often think about things like the Holocaust or the Jim Crow area as ancient history, as things that happened to other people in the past. And I think about even this year, someone like John Lewis passing away, right? this absolutely monumental figure in, in, in civil rights and that these people who were like alive at the same time as us and that you know these are things that happened to your father and these are people that happened to people that are still alive and how important it is to make sure that people realize that this is this is urgent and something that did not happen that long ago all things considered right absolutely and we do want people to look back on history, not because it's the historical event, but it's what led to that historical event. Yeah. What were the people's feelings, what motivated them? 
that's what we need to understand so that we can understand ourselves and we can understand the world around us. I kind of want to go back to your own, uh, you know, what was the impetus of, of you becoming an educator in the first place? You mentioned you started learning about your dad and all that when you were around 10. I'm curious if, I mean, I'm sure you remember the first couple of times that you learned about that. And I'm curious if those lessons and that story that you heard in any way drove you towards your path as an educator. My path to an educator, I always joked was genetic. I am fourth generation <laughs> teacher. Fourth? On my mother's side, fourth generation, yes, all the way right. to my great grandfather. So in my mother's family, there are probably 30 to 40 educators. We could open our own school, guidance counselors, <laughs> superintendents, classroom teachers, every subject. Um, it, it's what I always wanted to do. And on my dad's side, my grandmother was also a, an educator, but much smaller family. So we can't put the numbers there. My mom is a, my mom and my stepmom are both teachers and I'm not, a, I'm, a, I'm an education reporter. So like, even though I'm not a teacher myself, I feel like somehow they're responsible for where I'm at with this. <laughs> well, it, I used to play school in my classroom. I truly one year, I was given a chalkboard to put up in my classroom so that I could do that. Uh, my, my stuffed animals, my brothers, whoever I could coerce into being my students. So it was- Do you remember what you were, what were you teaching those stuffed animals? What was, what was the subject matter? <laughs> I, I could put math problems on the board. I could teach them to read. I could do all okay, those. Okay, yeah. I just needed an audience. Um, but it, Education was always what I wanted to do. And in fact, I have, I was kind of unusual at the time. I have a, a K through eight certificate originally, which meant I could teach any subject. And then I have a secondary English degree because I couldn't decide what group I liked more and what group I wanted to teach. So I wanted to be prepared for anything and be able to move around if I wanted to. But my father's story, when he told me the story, it was basically, here's the story. We're not going to talk about it anymore. But it was just, I was that inquisitive, outspoken child. And when my family went to Canada one year on vacation, we went up in 1967 to the Expo 67 up in Canada. We had to cross, of course, through the the checkpoints there through customs. And my dad had to present paperwork. And I immediately said, why does dad have papers? Where are our papers? Why don't the rest of us have papers? Well, my dad was caught completely off guard because they were not ready to tell me the story yet. And so he was trying to quiet me so as not to alert my younger brothers, but also make me satisfied with the answer. And then he decided he needed to give me the full story. But once the story was told, it was not to be discussed. In the 60s and even into the 1970s, survivors were really not talking about it publicly. My grandfather, who was an incredibly wonderful man and someone I admired, was concerned that people would discriminate against my father if they knew the truth. So it was more like, just don't talk about it. People don't need to know it and go on with your life. And I think many survivors took that attitude from what I understand. Yeah. 
you know, I'm curious about with specifically you went with English and when you're teaching that we found on this show that there is a disproportionate amount of English teachers that get nominated. <laughs> and I, I have done a lot of thinking. I've done a lot of soul searching about why that is. And I think that the only thing I can think of is that when we're talking about um, books and we're talking about narrative, there's a way that when we talk about these uh, these things, there's a way that we can dive deep into more, you know, philosophical conversations, conversations about ourselves and what drives us. And I think that allows us to connect maybe with students in a way that maybe it's more difficult to do, not certainly not impossible, but more difficult to do if you're a chemistry teacher. Do you think that that's probably the case? Because I mean, you are uh, one of many in a line of great English teachers that have <laughs> appeared on this show. Thank you. Uh, I always, my students would sometimes say to me that they learned a great deal of history in my classroom. And that's because you have to give them the context. You can't talk about the Holocaust in isolation. I could not teach about um, To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that in isolation. I couldn't teach 1984 in isolation. You need the history. So I think for students, English became more than just English. I could bring in some science. I could bring in some history. I could bring in other subjects as they were being revealed in the context of the book. So I think English teachers and uh, language arts teachers have a distinct advantage. That right. we can, There's a range that you can- Right, we, we can pull from all the different subjects and, and it's justified. We're not stepping on someone else's toes. It's just, oh, it's in my book. I get to teach this. <laughs> there is a certain kind of versatility to it or, or kind of utility or range that's unique to that in some way. But I've, again, it's something I thought about a lot as we were booking these shows. I'm like, oh, another one, there it is. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that we're haunting your dreams, but we're out there and we're gonna continue to, I hope, impact other students and influence those lives. I'll take it. Lynn, I only have a few more questions for you. Over the years, I, I, I always hesitate to ask questions that are like, what's the greatest lesson you've ever learned? Because that puts so much pressure on you to be like, I need to isolate one specific thing. But can you pinpoint a good lesson that you learned about education and the value of it throughout the course of your career or something that you were surprised to learn over the course of those years? I think I'm surprised by how much it influenced my personal life. Hmm. When I was back in Pinellas County, Florida, I had an incredible building administrator. She was quite the role model at that time for me. And she suggested that I consider going into administration and becoming a building principal such as she was. And I really thought about that because to me, that was such a compliment coming from her. But I realized I never wanted to leave the classroom. I wanted to be with my students. And I spent most of my career with eighth graders and their parents were usually the first ones to say, are you out of your mind? And because I would tell them how much I appreciated being a part of their children's lives. That was quite an honor for me to see them become who they could possibly be to get a peek inside their minds. They really became a part of my life and they influenced what I did as an educator. 
is it something you thought about when you know, we talked about how as an educator, you can really have an impact on someone and that can be a positive impact or that can be a negative impact. Is that something that like early on in your career is something that you can even consider or is that something that comes with, with time and, and spending years in that environment? The first couple of years of my career was probably so fear-driven that I, I felt like I was a fraud. After my first year of teaching- Imposter syndrome, I'm familiar, yes. <laughs> I, I told my first group of eighth graders I, at the end of the year, I said, can I have a do-over? Because I do so much better if you let me do this again. I think the first few years when you're, you're trying to find your rhythm and what works for you and your classroom management and your approach to your students and what you prioritize. Because if you're given a curriculum guide, you, you can't cover everything to the depth you would like to. So you have to prioritize. So in the beginning, that consumed so much of me. But by the end of my career, I had been in the school district long enough that people sort of knew what to expect from me, which was the unexpected, that I was a little off the wall sometimes on the things that I did and the, the approach that I took. Um, I, I will tell you that the nickname that I was given many years ago in my school district was the Ravenator. The Ravenator, that's an incredible nickname. That sounds like you're one of the Avengers. That's great. <laughs> well, I, I did have my Darth Vader costume that I would wear to school one, once. So that I truly was on the dark side of the force, but. Um, <laughs> Save that one for May the 4th, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. so I was, I, I could grow into that comfort level and feel confident in what I was doing and know that where I was headed wasn't always obvious to administrators or to parents, but if you would hang in there with me, we'll get to it. And I think that that was the most valuable part was having some confidence that I really was doing what was, I thought, in the best interest of my students. The last question I'll ask, I know we've talked a little bit about your volunteer work with the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, Echoes and Reflections, all those types of places. I just want to put it out there for people that are curious and want to learn more about the tools and resources at their disposal to, you know, maybe online if people aren't from the area to, to learn about these things. What are some things that you'd recommend for not just students, but just for in general adults, people who want to go and, and learn more and really get steeped into the history of all these things? Well, Echoes and Reflections has an incredible website, and through that, a person would have access to survivor testimony. So the survivor testimony is through the Shoah Foundation. There are hours and hours and hours of testimony, but the way it's set up is someone could search for a specific topic. So you don't have to listen to two hours of one survivor. If you just want to know about the Ludge Ghetto, for example, or you want to know what it was like to be a hidden child, you can get that information. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has a magnificent website and resources. The museum is opening and closing depending upon the pandemic, but the website is always open and that is terrific. The Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, of course, puts up links all the time and helps people find more information. Yad Vashem is online. That's another place where people can go. Again, it's free. It's open to the public and people can read. They can watch videos. They can look at timelines and certainly listen to survivor testimony. 
Perfect. All right, Lynn. Well, it was it was a pleasure. It was a privilege. I had a great time talking to you. I hope that you enjoyed having a conversation this afternoon, too. It's quite an honor to be here. And Anna was unbelievable in nominating me and I enjoyed the process. So I guess I can speak to her again in the future. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to, glad to hear we didn't completely fracture your relationship. That's good to hear. That's, that's what we go for typically. <laughs> well, it, it's been a pleasure, Peter, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about something that I feel strongly about and that I hope is of interest to other people. And I'm glad you share that interest. Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Lynn. Send them our way. Teacherslounge at niu.edu is the email. And wherever you're hearing this, like us, subscribe us, leave us a rating. Anything you can do, it does help and get more listeners and more perspectives and more guests like Lynn. Big thanks to the Northern Illinois band Kind Doves, as always, for the amazing music that you hear throughout the show. Shout out to Spencer Tritt for the Teacher's Lounge logo. I have been your host, Peter Mudlin. We'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon.